Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. All right, Mr. Dominic Frisbee, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Robert. Pleasure to be here. We were just talking about Aristotle, I think. We were. We were talking. I was about to sing the praises of walking. We were talking about writing techniques. And Aristotle used to, his uh, school was called the Peripatetic School. And he used to hold his lessons while walking. So the students didn't sit down in class and listen to him holding court at the front. They would all go on a walk and he would teach them while he was walking. And a lot of the time, the ancient Greeks did stuff and they couldn't necessarily explain it. And we're only just starting to explain it scientifically now. But you look a lot, a lot of great writers, P.G. Woodhouse, great comic writer, um, Nassim Taleb, you know, great f- philosophical writer. Mm-hmm. They're big advocates of walking. Mm-hmm. And apparently what happens is it's something like when you're walking, the part of the brain that inhibits creativity is focused on the automated function of walking Mm. and as a result you're more likely to have good ideas and i think if you think a lot of people have good ideas when they're doing something automated in the baths another one in the shower recycling and walking so i think um, and I, I actually when i go and walk the dog i often listen to podcasts and i find i'm way more responsive to them listening to them while i walk right and so yeah on the benefits of walking is, is the first theme of today's show. <laughs> I, yeah. I've, um, I find if it maybe it's exercise in general, because I, when I, I go to the gym actually, and I'll listen to podcasts mm-hmm. and I find myself as I get more, uh, warmed up, you know, my, my heart rate's going, I'm sweating. The ideas start to flow too. So I start taking notes pretty feverishly in my phone. Uh, just usually in like a notes app categorized by different topics I'm thinking about or writing on. And then I'll grab those ideas later and incorporate those into my writing. But I found it just be a, a time of day when, I mean, I'm probably having ideas 10 to one when I'm exercising versus just sitting around. There's a comic writer in England called Dominic English. He's not very well. He's not very, He's not very famous. He keeps a low profile, but he writes for some of the most famous comedians in the UK, Jimmy Carr and various others. And um, he's been in the business 30 or 40 years, and it's a difficult business to to stay in and earn a living at for that long. 
And Dominic's writing method, he makes me laugh, is he'll get the brief, you know, whatever the writing brief for the morning is. Mm -hmm. You know, we want jokes about Bitcoin or we want jokes about Joe Biden or whatever the brief is. And he'll do a bit of, you know, he'll watch a couple of Bitcoin videos or a couple of Joe Biden videos or read some articles or whatever it is. And then he just, he literally goes to the, he takes his iPad and he goes to the gym and he goes on the cross trainer. You know, the mm, one where you do yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah. He, that's, he, he writes all his material while he's doing the cross trainer. Interesting. And he'll be doing it and, he, and he'll quick, keep stopping and writing jokes down and does that. And then by the time he's got off his one hour session or whatever it is, you know, he's got his jokes for the day written. And then he goes home to his computer and just tidies them all up and neatens them all up and sends them off. Yeah, it's a great strategy. I mean, the the creative juices that people always talk about, I think it's real. It seems to be real, at least. Once you get the blood flowing, the sweat moving, the creativity ramps up, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so shifting tact a little bit, we yeah. I know we're going to talk about price action. We're recording right now. This is May 22nd, 2021. Bitcoin just incurred a, I guess, almost a 50% drawdown at one point. I think it was, it peaked at around 64,000 perhaps. And I think it drew down to the low 30,000s. Um, some say even below 30,000 on some exchanges. Um, so yeah, how are you How are you thinking about that? How are you handling it? Any words well, of wisdom for people that may have been shaken up by the volatility? I'm, I'm handling it with a certain amount of sorrow because obviously you want it, you want it to go up. And... I'm pretty good at reading markets, I think, and looking at price levels. I'm I'm not so good at trading them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's much harder. But the but I tend not to trade crypto that much. Um, probably I should trade it. I, I used to trade it more, but there's a it's a technical reason why I don't do it now. It's just to do with the software I've got. But the I think according to my apps, it was sixty four was the high or sixty three ninety or something, mm-hmm. and it went to thirty. Mm. So that's a 50% correction. And then, and then it rallied to maybe 42. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a massive line of resistance at 42. Mm. It's one of those pivot points. It was support for a long time, and I think it's going to be resistance for a while. Mm. And as, as when I last looked this morning, it was at 35. Yeah. So that's where we are. Now, I, I'm well aware of the sort of, you know, in each bull run, it has eight, 40% or 35, 40% corrections on its way of doing 10 or multiples. However, many, you know, th- let's say the 2016, 17 bull market went from two or 300 bucks to eventually 20,000. Yeah. And in yeah. that journey, it, it had eight, 40% corrections, something like that. Sounds about now, right. Yeah. Yeah. Now this, but this is over 50 already. Yeah. So I'm inclined to think that we might be going into a little bit of a crypto winter. Mm, interesting. I don't think it's going to be as ex- extreme as some of the other crypto winters because I don't think the bull market that preceded it yeah. is extreme. But I think a lot more people own Bitcoin than we're led to believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it always looks obvious in the rearview mirror. It always does. Yeah. But, you know, we had an altcoin season. You know, altcoin season normally marks the end. It wasn't the craziest altcoin season I've ever known, but it was an altcoin season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Coinbase IBO, IPO, those big IPOs, they always 
mark something, or not always, but they often mark something. Yeah. And then, you know, um, Elon Musk, and there was, you know, so, so there, I just think it maybe gone a little bit too far. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sort of not that worried about it really, because, you know, Bitcoin's a, it's, it is, like I, I, I often say, if, if you if you were a Marvel comic and you were designing the ultimate <laughs> bubble asset, you would design it. It would be a new technology that is money, and yeah. so and that is Bitcoin basically. Yeah. So I'm afraid speculative manias accompany it on the upside, and then the corresponding bear markets are equally emotional. Yeah, and I think it would be typical of Bitcoin. To go back to twenty thousand, yeah, the old high, and kiss it goodbye, yeah. So that's that's my theory. Is I think we go. Do you to have um, you, you mentioned a brief crypto winter. Do you have timelines in mind? Like when do you no, think it would? When do you think it would uh, break its? How long do crypto winters last? A year. What's that? How long do crypto winters typically last? A year, would you say? <laughs> um. So we had a blow off top in December 17. It drew down over 12 months to a low of, that was 20,000. It drew down to 3,500. It then had a run up again to 14,000 in mid 19. So that was 18 months, but then it drew down again to COVID of, of like 3,400 or 3,800 maybe. Um, typically I think it's 18 to 24 months before it breaks the prior all-time high again. It's about a four-year cycle. So it's, you know, two years is roughly um prior all-time high to breaking it again. I I don't think it'll be that long. Mm. But I think I think we could go and you you just don't know, but yeah. a realistic prognosis. Is that we go to twenty thousand, and then we range trade mm. for a bit, you know, and you know within that range trade there'll be a bull market that goes on for three or four months, and then there'll be a bear market, and um, you know, as well as extreme emotional euphoria and extreme yeah. emotional pessimism, yeah. there are times when B B Bitcoin experiences extreme emotional boredom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and so maybe we need another one of those periods as well. Um, so uh, you know, it's still it, it's still the go-to asset. The other reason I'm a little bit um, less positive than some about Bitcoin's chances are that I'm not selling any of my Bitcoin, by the way. In fact, yeah. I'm hoping to be able to save up more money and that it goes down to twenty thousand or even twelve thousand. There's a you know, there's a big obvious technical line at twelve or fourteen thousand, mm -hmm. um, so that I can buy more. But the the um, if you look at bitcoins over the last year or so, it's very traded very much like a tech stock, mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of almost tracked the Nasdaq. If you put the Bitcoin chart over the Nasdaq, the the, the patterns are very similar. And the if you look go back to say the late 1980s, from the late 1980s to about 2000, tech, digital, dramatically outperformed real stuff, commodities, mm -hmm. yeah. mining, farming, this kind of thing. 
And then from about 2000 and 2000, top of the dot-com bull market through to maybe 2003, bull mar- uh, uh, real stuff dramatically outperformed. And then from maybe, I'm going to say 2004 to about 2009, the two sort of, they were both going up. But mm-hmm. they both, if you compared the two, they were kind of flat with each other. They were in, in a range. And then from 2009 through till now, digital tech has just killed real stuff. Mm-hmm. The outperformance has been huge. Yeah. And, you know, there's very good reason for that. We've talked about it already. Digital is just so much more scalable than yeah. real stuff. There's just um, vastly more growth potential. But you do still need real stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I think we've been seeing over the last two or three months a rotation into real stuff. And if you look at the copper price, things like tin, aluminium, zinc, they're oil. They're all in massive bull markets, farming mm. stocks, grain, lumber. Yeah. And so, you know, I think there's a real rotation going on into real stuff. Mm. And we might be in a bull, in a relative bull market for real stuff for yeah. maybe a couple of years. That doesn't mean Bitcoin and tech don't go up. Yeah. But, but it's sort of commodities um, turn to shine mm-hmm. for a couple of years. Right, 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 right. Well, I'll... Just a theory. You know, yeah, yeah, of course. That um, what is the old saying that all models are wrong, some are useful, most are dangerous. So take everything we're saying here with a grain of salt. But yeah, just I mean, to add, I, I'd like to go on. You go. Just to add a little counterbalance uh, to, I guess you would say maybe your neutral to bearish outlook on crypto short term, at least. I actually think this correction is a normal part of the bull market. I think Bitcoin's price action is still driven predominantly by its supply and demand fundamentals. So the having is driving these cycles still. I expect to see a new all-time high price in mid quarter four. And I think we're going above $300,000. That's also, and the reason I did this model years ago, which again, all models are wrong. Some, what is it? Some are useful, most are dangerous. And it, it had Bitcoin at 20,000 by December 2020, which we hit. We hit about 24,000, I think, by the end of the month. Um, and it had Bitcoin at 244,000 by the end of this year. Now, that was before COVID. So when I reran the model, just basically um, putting some inflation in there because all the printing that occurred in quarter one and quarter two of 20. typically the inflationary pressures of that activity hit about 18 months later, which just happened to line up with Bitcoin's peak price window. So I think US dollar inflation pressures, which we're already seeing today, but I think they're going to become, they're going to become especially evident in the next six months. And that's going to line up really well with uh, Bitcoin's typical peak, which comes in about 510 days after the halving. So I'm still extremely bullish. I think this correction that was a little more than 50%, I would attribute to a couple of things. One, Bitcoin's been really aggressive to the upside the first five of the past five or six months. It was outperforming my model 100%. So I expected a pretty strong correction. And two, I would say there's a mature options market built up around it. So if we get a little too levered long, you know, when this thing does start to unwind, it's more volatile to the downside. So 
I've like, I don't know, I've, after being in Bitcoin this many years and I'm purely just treating it as a game of accumulation, the price doesn't, it doesn't phase me at all. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. You get, you get Bitcoin Zen, I guess, where you're just trying to increase your, your stack of sats and you're not so much worried about the price. Uh, but yeah, I think, I guess I'm just much more in the bullish camp. I'll be more worried about the price when I'm ready to sell. And it's not. See, I don't ever want to sell. Well, (laughs) at some point, you know, uh, at some point you've got to buy yourself a new fridge freezer, Robert. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if there's something that some passionate item that I really want, then maybe I would trade Bitcoin for it at some point, ideally directly. But I, on principle, I really don't want to sell Bitcoin into fiat. Like, Ideally, I want to. I'm just trying to take territory on this network. Um, and we talked about this a little bit before, but that's why I just focus on generating income so I can live mm. and then taking excess and sweeping it into treasury for me, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. And, and a more efficient way is to borrow against it rather than sell. More efficient and more dangerous. But yes. Yeah, absolutely more dangerous. I wish I was one of those guys that could be like, like, state projections about what the market's going to do with total absolutism as though he's stating fact you know you get some of those newsletter writers yeah they state, they state with total certainty in order yeah. to sell more and more newsletters and it's very charismatic and inspiring to yeah. watch and i'm always a bit more well but um you know and and i think actually you get more followers if you state stuff with absolute fact because right. people like to know what's going to happen it makes them feel more secure 100 percent um, yeah. But anyway, I'm not worried about Bitcoin in the long term. And I suppose we can segue into one of the first things we wanted to talk about today, which was scalability, which is a subject Mm -hmm. we've talked about before. And we've talked about the scalability of digital tech versus the scalability of, of, you know, physical stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you invent a brilliant app, you only need to upload it to the app store once and it can be downloaded a million or a billion times. Whereas if you invent a brilliant widget you've still got to manufacture a million or a billion of them and distribute them and it's just makes the physical economy much harder to be scalable in and that's why we've had this extraordinary growth in digital stuff but with this idea of scalability in mind i want to talk about bitcoin versus national currencies because a national currency by the way okay we'll we'll focus on this i just i had yeah um a national currency is is limited by its borders. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just a limit to how big that currency can be, how big the market cap of that currency can be. And that even applies to something like the US dollar, which is limited by its, even though it's the sort of the global reserve currency, there are still the limitations of, of the US national borders. And then if China starts and Russia start using alternate currencies, you know, there are just all sorts of limitations yeah. on a national yeah. currency. Those limitations don't exist on cryptocurrencies, which are inherently international. Yeah. So that gives something like Bitcoin the potential to be the international reserve currency of the internet. Let's call right. it that. Yeah. And the the vastness of that role the international reserve currency of the internet you know 
you're talking about then um that doesn't mean that the dollar disappears but it means that the the if you just think how big the internet economy is right and bitcoin right. becomes the its international reserve currency then you're talking about extraordinary potential uh long-term valuations it's a great great analogy and it's a good way to think about it perhaps that if the internet were a country like how would you value its currency you know you're betting on this country like how effective is this country going to be in the, the digital age i guess you would say and you know the more commercial activity that takes place there the more transactions are facilitated there the more really value is created there right how, how much of our attention is being allocated into the internet or through the digital economy that's a good proxy whatever you expect that growth pattern to be that's a good proxy for the value of the money because this is a money again with perfect supply and elasticity so bitcoin supply unlike all these other national currencies as purchasing power increases the supply does not change at all so bitcoin's purely expressing this economic growth on the internet through its price whereas historically like say in the us dollar we've had all this economic growth in the country but the central bank will actually harvest that economic surplus by by violating the supply of money by printing so it i think it's a wonderful analogy to look at it that way in that mm. you know all the things we've talked about digital how, how much it contributes to productivity and scaling and human cooperation like how would you value the money that serves all of that because that is bitcoin mm -hmm. and by the way although we talked about you know this rotation into real stuff it doesn't mean that Bitcoin can't rise within that environment. Uh, uh, you know, Bitcoin could quite easily detach itself from other tech stocks. I just yes. noticed that they've been traveling in a similar direction. And, you know, if real stuff starts going up dramatically in price and, you know, for example, I look, I, you know, I've got a mining background. And so I look at things like tin and I'm, I'm massively long tin. There's a huge structural supply shortage in tin. Mm -hmm. And if that feeds into the real market, then that becomes inflation very quickly. You know, raw materials prices right. go up and then that puts pressure on governments. Now, either they debase currency more or they tighten rates. But even now, if, even if they just tighten rates, you know, half a percent or something, it's going to be so much <laughs> deflationary pressure, yeah. margin call and everything. So that could, you know, that could hold Bitcoin back for a bit. Yeah. But, you know, the longer time goes on, the, the closer the inflationary um, cat is to getting out of the bag. Yeah. And, and, that, and that ultimately is good for Bitcoin. I think this tipping point is the, the distribution of the latest rounds of QE they were actually engaging in helicopter money you know in the us we have all these forgivable loans being given out these ppp loans there's it's rife with fraud by the way i mean people just go online punch in a few numbers and you get a big wire transfer that's a forgivable loan or maybe it's a 30-year fixed loan so i think this is the tipping point with this qe because once you start there's no politician that will ever go into office um on the the platform that he's going to remove the helicopter money that has been provided historically so it only goes one direction right just like government revenue just like government um bureaucracies and whatnot they, they only tend to go one direction so i think we're going to see some 
really, I guess you could say semi-cataclysmic things happening in these national currencies over the next 10 to 15 years. I think we're gonna have a wave of smaller currencies collapsing. Mm. Um, and you'll see the purchasing relative purchasing power of stronger currencies grow, uh, like mm. the Euro, like the dollar, like, like Chinese yuan. um, in that time, you'll see these currencies collapsing and smaller currencies collapsing into larger currencies. But I also would expect Bitcoin to just radically outperform throughout that time period as well. Oh, for sure. And I, 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 I think the time frame is less than ten to fifteen years, Robert. I'd, I'd say five. But the the my girlfriend is Irish, and she just she's just over. She was in Ireland last week. And she said they've got a ma massive problem in Ireland, which everyone's getting their furlough money, which is the money they were paid while they're not working. Yeah. And so suddenly there's a shortage of workers. Nobody wants to be a shop assistant. Yeah. They're getting their 350 euros a week for not working. Yeah. Why would they go and work in a shop for 400 euros yeah. a week? Government intervention. Yeah. Yeah. And so th that's one problem. We have the, had these things called furlough money and also bounce back loans we had, mm -hmm. which is for companies where you could get a loan of up to $50,000 to help your company through the crisis. Yeah. Loads of people have set up companies in order to get a 50 yeah. grand. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just <laughs> rife with fraud. Yeah. And they just, you know, the fraudsters always outwit the, uh, oh, the yeah. regulators and the government. Yeah. And so, you know, and that all, that it's, it's all inflationary and it will, you know, it, it, it does not end well. That's what, yeah, I agreed completely. And that's why this, particular round is so fundamentally different than say 2008, 2009, mm. where the banks were actually decapitalized. So a lot of that QE went into recapitalizing the banks in those markets. We still had asset inflation as a result, but we didn't see it at the consumer level. This time it's way different. It's a it's an order of magnitude larger and the distribution is direct to consumers. So I think I think inflation, I, I put out this prediction recently. I think the US dollar is gone in 15 years. I think it's hyperinflated. Well, the, the, we have to, it, a lot of that depends on China. Yeah. When China's ready to pull the plug, it's got the gold, it might have the Bitcoin as well. Right. And, you know, when it's ready, you know, it yeah. depends. Apparently, um, the current leader, you know, there's the whole thing of we must not shine too brightly. Mm -hmm, uh, until mm -hmm. the time is right. Right. Current leader is quite a big egotist. Apparently, he might want the uh, he might might want it on his watch. Really unraveling. So how, uh, how long is his watch? Do you know? Well, as long as he lives. So it's I mean, like it, that. Yeah, I think he's reelected. I'm, I'm not that that sure about um, uh, Chinese politics, but I think he's got the gig, and for as long as he wants it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not too. Not too educated on Chinese politics either, but I figured as much. Well, time will tell, I guess, but we do know that it ends badly, right? These, as we've seen through all the histories we've been looking at, uh, these currency experiments end badly. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we could pivot back to the book, Daylight Robbery, and how we're walking through. Um, some of that i i mentioned to you before the show that i thought this the glorious revolution i'd never even heard of this actually that with the the execution of charles the first sort of came the triumph of parliament over monarchy i suppose where there were actual the the god-given rights and sovereignty 
typically associated with the king was now decentralizing in a way it was moving to to a parliament and the parliaments um they created these declarations for free speech free elections regular uh regularly convening parliaments and they were also creating greater protections for individual life liberty and property they were sowing the seeds for what would later become you know the u.s constitution effectively right the u.s constitution was premised on all these ideas well it was and we're talking about a, a fairly long period in english history from about probably the beginning of the 17th century or just after mm -hmm. right well basically the whole of the 17th century and it started with james the first and then charles the first who were kings by divine right mm -hmm. and in those days you know the king was god he was yep. seen as god and it started with a war <laughs> over taxes parliament for some reason had control of taxes and parliament wasn't crazy parliament was mostly protestant and charles the first was a catholic they weren't crazy and charles the first had ambitions to fight wars in france and parliament wouldn't give him the money and then he started right he raised these ship taxes mm -hmm. uh, the tax on shipping was one of the few taxes he could actually raise and then this guy john hamden refused to pay the shipping money and he was a great parliamentarian one of the people who've and it ended with the english civil war and in fact, John Hamden's statue is still in the um, House of Commons today. And the English Civil War was really a series of wars that went on for many decades, fought between Crown and Parliament, and Parliament eventually won. And then we had Oliver Cromwell, mm. who was a great... Uh, a great battle... great military strategist. But... At one point, we had got Charles, the Scots had taken Charles I, and we paid £100,000 of silver to get him back off Charles I, off the Scots. So £100,000 of silver was a king's ransom. Mm. Okay. And then Oliver Cromwell, when he became, uh, I think it was Prince Regent or something was his title, or Regent, started paying himself £100,000 of silver annually. <laughs> <laughs> so he was paying himself literally a king's ransom. And then he died and then his son wasn't as competent and then they didn't really know what to do. And so we had this thing called the Restoration where we actually got Charles II back from France and got him to be king. And actually, he was a really good king, and that was actually quite a happy time. And he was famous because when the fire of London happened, he went out and, you know, his advisors were all trying to get him away from it, and he went out and fought the fire. And mm. he was known as the Merry King. And he, 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 despite fathering, I think, 13 children, <laughs> he, he left no heirs because <laughs> wow. none of them were legitimate. Wow. So it was a pretty merry time he had of it. And... Um, and then he, I think he died. His final words were, "I'm sorry, it's taken me so long a dying." So, by all accounts, he was a he was he was known as the Merry King, and he was quite popular. And then his son James II came along, and he was less popular, much sterner, again Catholic. And Parliament decided they wanted to get rid of him, and so they, his daughter, had married William, King of um, Holland. Mm -hmm. William of Orange, and they got William over, and William defeated James. And then we got, this was known as the Glorious Revolution, the Bloodless Revolution, because mm. he won without without barely any loss of life. As it turned out, all the loss of life was in Ireland. Uh, there was the thing called the, uh, many people were murdered in Ireland, but, but in England, it was known as the Bloodless Revolution. Mm. 
And then we got this thing, the English Bill of Rights, which was sort of the successor to Magna Carta, mm. which had come about three or 400 years earlier. And, and again, Magna Carta was probably, its reputation is greater than its actual um, content, but they were great declarations of freedom. They got rid of the hearth tax. They, they, were, they recognized the individual rights and so on. And the par- parliament was sovereign now and the king wasn't uh, sovereign anymore. And parliament, if the king wanted to spend money, he had to go to parliament and get their approval. Mm. And um, it made the monarch accountable to parliament. So it was a decentralization of power. It The whole process took decades, almost yeah. a whole century. But so finally we had this um, uh, glorious revolution, 1687. Now, it wasn't all that glorious because about 10 years later, in order to... Um, uh, fund his spending. The king founded the uh, Bank of England, and we got the mm. beginning of central banking. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't, you know, replacing one evil with another. But the um, the point was, all those messages at the time about the freedom of the individual and the citizens' rights were very much embedded in the English mentality. Mm-hmm. And so when the American Civil War came, less than a hundred years later, but all the um, English settlers or the British settlers who'd gone out and settled America, when you know they rose up against their English overlords, they didn't think they were fighting for new rights. They right. thought they were fighting for rights that were already enshrined in Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights. So they had this mentality, no, we're not fighting for something new, we're fighting for what is ours. Yeah, and, right. And, and yeah, it, the the great sort of successor to the English Bill of Rights was the American Constitution, which is a wonderful constitutional document if you're the sort of person that favours individual liberty and freedom and so on. And in fact, the, the 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 American states model, where all the states are next to each other and competing with each other, is a wonderful force. That competition to keep, if somehow people could put a rein on federal spending, right? But the the, the rivalry between states. You know, for example, now everyone leaving New York to go to Florida and Texas, that's a wonderful force of competition to keep government small. Yeah. But unfortunately, it doesn't, it, it seems to have um, lost accountability at the federal level, even though it's remained at the local level. Yeah, these, uh, it seems to me that these transformations in our conception of sovereignty, they're actually, they're at least partially rooted in our technological realities too, right? So this was post-enlightenment, we're going through the industrial age. So we're becoming more productive, more wealthy, more free. And with that, I think people start to kind of fight over the growing pie. And so you see, instead of having one guy call all the shots, you know, as the population grows and becomes more productive, there's this pressure to move towards a more distributed um, governance system. But the counter force to that would be something like the central bank or fiat currency, which allows those few to start harvesting that economic surplus back off the the total economy. And I think that's what's happened in the U.S. is you had this quote um, from Thomas Jefferson at some point where he said, we're jumping forward a little bit, but he's talking about the U.S. is that it may be the pleasure and pride of an American to ask what farmer, what mechanic, what laborer ever sees a tax gatherer in the United States. So saying there was no income tax, no window tax, uh, there was no plethora of petty taxes, government was small and local. And that's what, like every other example you've given, it's like when 
government's small, local, predictable, you know, in terms of taxes and, and legislation, the economy booms, right? People have sound rules on which to build a strategy and, and become wealthy. Um, but it, it's interesting to me that these ebbs and flows are so rooted in kind of the technological realities of the day. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting point. I think you could say that one of the reasons we were able to end slavery, and I'm not just talking about in the United States, I'm talking about across the world. I know mm -hmm. it still exists in parts of Africa and so on, but broadly speaking, we have ended slavery. I mean, I know there are sweatshops and all the rest, mm -hmm. but people are not traded in the way That's that right. they once were. And what has made, what, you could argue it's the single biggest factor in making that possible was not that human beings suddenly became more humane. It was technological process. Absolutely. It was the increased product. You know, we had machines to work the fields, so we didn't yep. need slaves to work them anymore. That's right. So we could afford to end slavery. That's right. That's what I mean. And so, yeah, technological progress and, and wealth have a huge impact on the moral um, what's the word? The moral goodness of development. Yeah. 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 There's, um, the book, the rational optimist by, um, Matt Ridley. Oh, Ridley. Yeah. Yeah. Ridley. He makes a point that I think the numbers were the average American today, the amount of energy we consume in a year is equivalent to having 660 energy slaves where we'd have like 660 humans pedaling a bike 24 by seven, 365 to generate the amount of energy we consume in our day-to-day -day lives. But of course we don't have 660 people doing that. We have hydrocarbons, right? We've, we found a way to harness this energy from ancient sunlight effectively and, and to energize our world. And in doing so, you know, we electrified the grid and we just eliminate all these drudgeries of life. So as people become more free, you know, and in actuality, there's more productivity that that, you know, percolates up into our morality. I was watching a film last night, The Man Who Would Be King, which mm -hmm. is set in India in the late uh, 19th century, in the late 1800s. And there's a scene where you've got the English uh, local VIP. I don't know what his role was. He would, let's say he was the local minister or something, parliament minister. And there's a, there's an Indian guy who's got a, a string tied round his big toe and he spends his whole day going back and forth with his foot so that the fan operates to keep the English minister cool. Oh, <laughs> they didn't have electric fans. Yeah. So they had to get, you know, and this would have been across the, the hot world. The right. poor will have been obliged to, to man the fans for the yeah. rich. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thank goodness for electric fans. Yeah. And so that. And you could say, oh, we put those poor electric fan workers out of work. Well, do you know what? Probably it's good that they lost work because the, the increased wealth as a result of mechanized fans, you know, created more prosperity and opportunity for them to go and do other stuff that was less, you, you know, less gruesome and demeaning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then I'm sure at that time, that was probably a socially accepted thing. You know, you walk in to see the local minister and he's got his guy running the fan no one you don't even think twice about it but today yeah. if we saw that we'd be horrified you know it's yeah. like um yeah really interesting that that there's a scene in the jungle book if you ever watch the jungle book when you were a kid or you watch it with your kids and there's the scene with king louis of the apes 
and he's got all his all his you know his lackeys and they're all holding banana leaves fanning him with the banana leaves right <laughs> yeah that's right so yeah i think it's it's an important way to look at it and I, it reframes history in a way too where and you make this point later about the civil war where it's it was more of a practical pragmatic battle versus um this moral crusade that we're taught about in school you know uh, i don't want to jump ahead but just getting to the point that it yeah you start to look at history through the lens of necessity more so than um i don't know some type of it's bottom up right it's from the yeah. it's from wealth up to morality it's not morality down to wealth energy consumption is an indicator of the sophistication of the of the of the civilization yes you could do a chart of how sophisticated a civilization is and how much power it uses and the two would correspond and you know you just look at you know once upon a time we had to rely on burning fire and then yeah. we discovered you know i don't know whales and mm. various other things we could burn and and um gasoline and um not gasoline uh uh um Oh God, what's the uh, coal and uh, paraffin and so on. And then, um, you know, we started burning fossil fuels and now we're slowly starting to discover solar power and, and, and other greener forms of energy. I'm, I'm actually mm. slightly cynical about how green they are because of the amount of uh, copper and tin they require to mm -hmm. function, but that's another matter. Um, and, you know, so in fact, you know this criticism of bitcoin that you know it uses too much uses too much power well you know we need money to have a cost of production to it if money doesn't have a yes. cost of production to it it's it's got no value right. and uh and and they forget that the 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 it's that power that makes the network so strong and god it frustrates me you know you can i know the woman who wrote there was an article in the ft last week and i know the woman who wrote it katie martin i've sat on bitcoin panels and you know debated bitcoin with her and she's just ideologically opposed and she hates it and she's always hated it and mm. you know she hates it because she because th people email her and you know they're trying to get her to cover their coin or something and she just thinks the whole thing is a scam and she can't recognize how um enormously uh transformative the technology is yeah yeah i even the term energy consumption i just it doesn't ring true because we're it's to your point we need to harness more energy to become more civilized to eliminate all these drudgeries and become more wealthy it's about the cleanliness of that energy production process or energy conversion process and really in a world where private property rights, you know, Rothbard wrote about this a lot. If we preserve the integrity of private property rights, such that if you're dumping pollution in my river, you're pumping smog into my air, that I can then litigate, then that would actually increase the cost of dirty energy production and drive us towards more clean methods of production. So that's how the market figures it out. Legislation's not going to work. Like the, it's not like the world doesn't realize that we need to get our air cleaner. Right. And that, you know, fossil fuels are, are highly polluting. You know, we've we've we learned that and we've recognized that and our cities are getting cleaner as a result. But you don't need to start attacking Bitcoin because it consumes a lot of energy. You know, if you totted up the amount of energy that washing machines use worldwide, then suddenly mm -hmm. there'd be a load of people clamoring to ban washing machines. Exactly. It's just, just it's it's making people feel guilty. You know, I'm not encouraging waste 
And, you know, a lot of the time, everyone could run their household more efficiently than they currently do. And if energy prices were higher, then they probably would. Yeah. But the, 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 I, I, the fact that Bitcoin uses an, a lot of energy, I just do not think it's a problem. And, and, and the fact that some of it is coal-fired, already that's being addressed. Yeah. You know, more and more of it is, is, is not coal-fired. I think China did a ban this week on coal-fired um, uh, Bitcoin mining. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. To your point, it's, just, it's a necessity of money. We have to, there has to be, it has to be rooted in economic sacrifice. Otherwise the system gets corrupt. That's what proof of work is. That's what gold was. That's what Bitcoin is, is now becoming. So, um, so that, yeah. So that we had the glorious revolution sowing the seeds, I guess you would say for what would become America or the U S constitution. Mm. And then the I, the battle cry for the American battle for independence was this taxation without representation is tyranny, yeah. right? Um, but in your book, you make a great point that we actually, it wasn't that bad. The taxes weren't even that bad. It was more about, uh, I guess, the way it was implemented and the principles yeah. behind it. That's one of the, the, the great quote about taxation is from the uh, French finance minister to Louis the oh, I'm going to say Louis the 15th, maybe Louis the 16th, was the art of taxation considers, uh, consists of so plucking the goose as to obtain the most feathers with the least possible hissing. <laughs> and it's a wonderful quote. And, you know, it's why income tax today is such an effective tax, because it's deducted at source. Mm -hmm. People never actually hand the money over. They don't feel the pain right. of paying the tax. And that's why stealth tax is why inflation is such an effective form of tax because people don't feel the pain directly. And, you know, while America, the American settlers might've had these very high opinions of themselves uh, in the late 18th century that they had the same rights as Englishmen to the English, America was just another colony Yeah, treated the same as, you know, I don't know, the Caribbean or India or wherever. And so, and they saw it, you know, as much as anything as a place to be taxed. And they imposed, it wasn't so much the levels of tax, but it was the imposition of those taxes. There was mm -hmm. tax stamp duty. So every time mm -hmm. anything was stamped, somebody had to pay a tax. I think there was taxes on playing cards mm -hmm. and pamphlets. And then of course, all the row about tea and the tea taxes. And it was, it was, it was the, it was a much a case of how people were taxed as it was the extent to which they were taxed. And, you know, I think to leave Britain and go sail across the Atlantic and settle in another country denotes a certain amount of get up and go mm -hmm. <laughs> in mm -hmm. a person, particularly in those days, it was not an easy trip and it involved a considerable amount of bravery. So I think it's fair to say that the American settlers were, had get up and go, they were brave. They weren't scared to have a fight um they were entrepreneurial and all those things and so you know if they wanted something they were going to fight for it and and eventually you know they probably thought do you know what we're better off out yeah and so and and many of them you know went to war over it i mean it was a terribly bloody war yeah yeah i thought the stamp tax was especially interesting in that uh, I believe the British required stamps on all documentation of any kind to legitimize it. So they were almost taxing information flows, right? If you wanted yeah. to, 
uh, it was anything, right? It was a title, a, a document, an agreement, a contract that had to have this official stamp. Otherwise, it wouldn't even be acknowledged by the legal system. Uh, that's absolutely right. And and the but I th- I the it's about three years since I've read, written the chapter, uh-huh. Robert. So my <laughs> memory's right. a little bit sketchy, but. I still think, you know, it was, they were really, really objected to, and there were sugar taxes as well. Mm-hmm. But the, the, it was, um, the, there was a, let me grab my book because there's a wonderful passage. Benjamin Franklin, what a guy Benjamin Franklin was. And he uh, wrote this wonderful, they actually sent Benjamin Franklin as an envoy to come and um, negotiate with the English to try and talk some sense into them. But they, the English, of course, ignored him. Mm. But he wrote this wonderful satirical column in, um, I think it was somewhere in, 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 in Boston. And it was, it was, it, he called it the rules by which a great empire may be reduced to a small one. Oh yeah. And he wrote all these satirical rules. These are the things you need to do if you want to, um, mess things up for yourself yeah and he wrote this to make your taxes more odious and more likely to procure resistance send from the capital a board of officers to superintend the collection composed of the most indiscreet ill-bred and insolent you can find if any revenue officers are accused of the least tenderness for the people discard them (laughs) If others are justly complained of, promote them. And then he wrote another law, convert the brave, honest soldiers of your Navy into pimping tide waiters and colony (laughs) officers of the customs. Scour with armed boats every bay harbour, river, creek, cove and nook throughout the coast of your colonies. Stop and detain every coaster, every wooden boat, every fisherman, tumble their cargoes and even their ballast inside out and upside down. And if a pennyworth of pins is found unentered, let the whole boat be seized and confiscated. Yeah, That gives you an idea of the kind of stuff that the English were doing to the Americans at the time. And no wonder they just said no enough already. Yeah. And he's not embellishing. Actually, you you talked about that where they would inspect vessels for, I guess, uh, contraband or untaxed or undeclared items. And if they found one infraction on the entire ship, they'd seize the whole vessel. Yeah. And a lot of the time it wouldn't have been a dip. It would have just been an ac- accidental non-compliance. You right. know, it wouldn't have box or something it wouldn't have necessarily been deliberate right and it degenerated this level of authoritarianism degenerated into a lot of paid informants right where people were i think they were rewarding people to rat out other people Mm. on infractions too they'd give them whatever a third of the booty maybe Mm. um and that reminded me of uh what we saw in the kind of late stage ussr where the state it was so corrupt and so bad that no, it completely dissolved trust. People were, were ratting on each other. Um, if you were even, you know, disclosing to someone your sadness or your, your unfulfillment with whatever the state was doing, they could arrest you for that in the USSR because that would imply that the state wasn't doing its utopian job effectively. So it's just, I, it's a great, great vignette on how, state intervention and authoritarianism dissolves trust even like it breaks down social cohesion at a really fundamental level 
Nazi Germany did the same. They had kids reporting on their parents for things yeah. they'd said, you know, cynical. Amount, if, if I had my kids reporting on me for stuff I've said in my house. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the punchline here was that it was bad tax legislation on the part of the English that ultimately caused the birth of this low tax nation, which was the US. And that the low tax nation and uh, the distributed sovereignty, I guess, in our governance model is what allowed us to become, it laid the groundwork for us to become a world superpower. 100%. Yeah. And it was ill-considered taxation on behalf of the British, who at the time faced extraordinary uh, outgoings because they were just going, you know, there was, I don't think we'd quite gone to war with Napoleon yet. Uh, that was about probably 10 or 20 years later. Mm. But even so, government spending was spiralling and um, William Pitt would shortly become the Prime Minister of the UK and he was notorious for his plethora of petty taxes. I think somebody said about William Pitt, if an object moves, he will tax it. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I read we, the list in your book and it was, they were literally trying to tax every item, right? Yeah. Every Everything that you use in life right? Like your chapstick, your computer monitor, your books, your windows, your locks, your keys. Uh, the, equivalent, the equivalent today would be that I'm saying everything that you see in touch was being taxed. Yeah, well, it is today, except by the we don't notice it because we we don't we don't actually pay out the tax. Yeah, even tax. There was a there's a good he, William Pitt's taxes even affected fashion. Because um, he started to tax wig powder. Mm. And everyone in those days wore wigs. And then when we went to war with Napoleon, there was quite a few people who disagreed. You know, they were conscientious objectors. They didn't think we should be going to war with Napoleon. And so in order to denote their disagreement with the war, they stopped wearing wigs. Hmm. And then, and then, and this became, they started to become quite fashionable. And then, of course, the, the increasing cost of wig powder um, because Pitt was taxing it, meant that more and more people stopped wearing their wigs. And then wig wearing just died a death altogether. Wow. Pitt taxed the business into oblivion. <laughs> Reminds me of the beards that you said, uh, was it the Russian guy that taxed the beards? He did back? a great, yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's a good good pivot then into France, because there was a lot of this you know, weird taxation going on in France as well uh, during roughly the same period so the the first thing i thought was really interesting you said smuggling was really hard to prevent because france had so much coastline so they mm. couldn't stop these smuggled goods from getting into the mainland but what they ended up doing instead was building a second wall inside of the wall guarding paris specifically for tax collecting so this was yeah. these were the literal gatekeepers right yeah they were, and in fact, a lot of the great walls we think were built to keep intruders out. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time, you know, Hadrian's Wall that marked the border between England and Scotland and the Great Wall of China, a lot of the time they were built simply to make tax collection easier yeah. <laughs> because they forced everyone through the gate. Right. And then when they come through the gate, you can get your taxes off them. And so, um, 
But yeah, they built these little walls. France just had, I think at one point France, you know, you think French and the wine, but at one point France had five different taxes on wine mm -hmm. from the harvesting of the grape through to the processing of the wine. So that by the time they drank the wine, they had, they paid five different taxes on the way. And to the extent that the peasants couldn't afford to drink wine, so they drank cider instead. Wow. Yeah, but so the, the French Revolution was perhaps the most classic case mm. of, of, you know, the most explicit revolution. I know American Revolution was the most ex uh, explicit against um, taxes with no taxation, without representation. But, you know, it was, it was taxes that caused the French Revolution as well. And all those revolutions, the English Civil War, then the American Revolution, and then the French Revolution, they all formed, you know, what followed was the nation states that we know today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the tax farming that got really big in France, right? Yeah. Where I guess to collect the taxes, the 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 king or the sovereign was employing these tax farmers who, you know, what are they, debt collectors essentially, but but brutal and and clearly uh kind of cunning in their ways. But the problem with it, of course, became that they started taking such a heavy skim. You know, they were skimming so much of this wealth that they were collecting that a very, only a, a trickle of it got back to the treasury. Yeah, there was one point where um, the king was sat at the table and he was trying to have it explained to him why revenue was so low. Mm. And they, the, somebody took out a block of ice and put it on the table and got everyone around the table to pass the block of ice one person to the next person to the next person and then by the time it got to the king it had melted <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then he was said he had explained to him, that's why he haven't got any taxes yeah this is great everyone had their hand in it was so it was more lucrative to be a tax farmer than it was to go and do something productive yeah you and said so what? Every, yeah oh sorry go ahead you, you, you so you just get you and a couple of muscly people to go and uh you know collect salt taxes or whatever it was and and the you know the ordinary citizen you know they were you know it was collected by force and the tax farmers kept it and they kept some of it themselves and they passed the rest up the hierarchy and there was several different levels of the hierarchy before it got to the king and everyone was in on it and it was basically crony capitalism gone mad yeah you said one of the tax farmers became so rich that he was he purchased the Louisiana, all of oh, yeah. all of French Louisiana, right? He became like one of the wealthiest guys in the world at the time. I, that's that's absolutely right. I've forgotten that. I had forgotten that. Yeah, what was his name? That guy. He he had. Oh, he, he owned all of French Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, he was Antoine Crozat. Oh yeah, yeah. He grew so rich. So rich, he would count French Louisiana, all of it, among his assets. And French Louisiana was basically everything from, it wasn't just Louisiana, it would be Louisiana, it would be the, pretty much all of the Mississippi Delta. Wow, it's incredible. Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> the So this is Voltaire, great philosopher writing, and he's describing how... Um, the the tax collectors came to one of his estates one day mm. the gendarme of the tax farmers the gendarme would be the the uh, military the policeman basically 
marched about in groups of about 50, stopped all, <clears throat> excuse me, stopped all vehicles, searched all the pockets, forced their way into all the houses and made every kind of damage there in the name of the king and made the peasants buy them off with money. Wow. So that was what was going on. <clears throat> Taxation is extortion. It, I'll say, certainly was then. Yeah. Wow. And this, I, I love that you brought up Voltaire too, because this is another really interesting part I found in the book is that this was right around, you know, the, the printing press had been around for, I guess, a couple hundred years by this point. Um, the distribution of information was much cheaper. Mm -hmm. And we had things like this. There was the 27 volume Encyclopedia, I guess is how you maybe say it in French. And it was yeah. issued with this express purpose to change the way people think. And, and the philosophers of the time, including Voltaire, they started becoming very instrumental in changing people's perceptions of the world. Right. So, um, this, again, the, and they had the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen which were liberty, equality, inviolability of property, and the right to resist oppression. That's absolutely right. And they spread them, they were written in the vernacular. And, you know, the parallels between the encyclopedia and the internet today, and the spreading of free thought, and the spreading of subversive anti-authoritarian thought, you know, it, you know, that was a huge, um, factor in the intellectual, you know, revolutions, you've got to have an intellectual, you've got to win the intellectual war as, the as well as the physical mm, war. That's right. And by, I guess often the intellectual war is won by one side and the physical war is won by another. But, <laughs> you know, in the, in the case of the French Revolution, the revolutionaries won the, you know, in order to get France to the point of revolution, they had to convince the French, particularly the bourgeoisie, the middle classes of, um, you know, a bit like the arguments that are going on about free speech today. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the free speech advocates are winning those, those war. Um, but there's some great quotes. Volt in, this was in the encyclopedia. Um, in the matter of taxation, every privilege is an injustice. Mm -hmm. And that's Voltaire. And that I, I presume he means by every tax break, every subsidy, every yeah. time when one person plays that was one of the things about the french tax system people weren't taxed equally different people paid different rates and that pissed people off interesting and then rousseau said uh he who only has the bare necessities of life should pay nothing and the and and then this was Raynal said of the poor man francis francis tax system makes them a beggar of the workman, an idler, of an unfortunate, a rogue. Yeah. And you can sort of, we were talking about, um, you know, all the government incentives to do with COVID and all the fraud and so on. Yeah. Well, that's going on. You know, it's, it's turning, it's made the poor man a beggar. It's made the workman an idler and it's yeah. made the unfortunate a rogue. I mean, again, there's just so many parallels. Yeah. No, I, I see it. This is so salient to me because I, I see it as the liquidity of, of ideas dissolving traditional power structures in a way. It's like people mm -hmm. were starting to think differently again because of a change in technological realities, right? We had the printing press and pamphlets and all these other, the encyclopedia, encyclopedia, 
I don't know how you say that word. It's encyclopedia. Well, I think it's encyclopedia, but I'm not okay. sure. Maybe encyclopedia. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and this, you know, I love that specifically the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, the inviolability of property, mm -hmm. right? That became something seated here in the American consciousness, like that the right to life, liberty, and property is something that we take historically uh, proclaim and take very seriously. I think there's a genuine feeling in, in the authoritarian left that they have a right to your property. Of course. And, and, and we've, we've seemed to have lost sight of how essential to a good functioning society property rights are. And yes. it, it's like right at the basis, one of the essential building blocks. And, you know, we seem to have lost sight of that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, if you, could... you know, that man owns too much. We, we have to confiscate some of his wealth. No. Yeah. It's crazy. Honestly, it's crazy to try and justify compulsion or theft. And if you consider that property, it's really the whole game. We say life, liberty, and property, but you are your own property too. Your time, mm -hmm. your body, your attention. So that it's really just property. It's like whatever yourself and whatever you spend your time and energy adding value to, you should have exclusive rights to basically. This is, I use taxation. I think I've said this already, but I'll say it again. I use taxation to describe that because in an anarchy where there's no taxes, this is theoretical, of course, because mm. one of my other arguments is there's no civil, you can't have a civilization without taxation of some form, but you can right. have all. But anyway, in an anarchy where there is no tax, the, the worker owns all of his own body and all of his own labor. And at yes. the other extreme, you have, you have, at one extreme, you have a totalitarian state, North Korea or Soviet Russia or something, where the worker owns pretty much none of his own labor. Right. He still kind of owns his own body. And then one stage on from that, you have slavery, where he owns neither his own body nor his own labor. That's like 100% the opposite of an anarchy. Right. And we, we're, you know, we're 40, 50, 60% of labor is owned in the social democracies of the West at the moment. <clears throat> so we're sort of somewhere in between those two extremes. Yeah, and it, there's some tipping point where it breaks down. People have just had enough, right? Like you, you, you're taking too much of my property or time, and it, it incites revolution. Um, there's this one quote by Ayn Rand I'll read in regard oh, to yeah. property. I love it. So it says, the right to life is the source of all rights, and the right to property is their only implementation. Without property rights, no other rights are possible. Since man has to sustain his life by his own effort, the man who has no right to the product of his effort has no means to sustain his life. The man who produces while others dispose of his product is a slave. Powerful. It is. She's like, I find her books quite hard to read, but I could spend my whole day reading her quotes. <laughs> <laughs> I am ashamed to say I haven't read anything of hers yet, but people are really pushing me to. So I'm going to, I'm going to start. Yeah. I mean, she's one of the great philosophers. Yeah. And she took no prisoners. Like I'm, I, you know, I have a go at myself sometimes because I'm a bit too compromising and, you know, I don't like to get into fights with people. So I'll, I'll try and compromise, but she didn't compromise. Mm. Michael Saylor doesn't compromise. Dominic yep. Frisbee shouldn't compromise, and he does uh, too often. <laughs> <laughs> but this, so that one that I keep zeroing in on, the inviolability of property. Yeah. I like this so much because it was just an idea, 
But it actually, I would argue that idea was not possible to implement prior to Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin is the greatest implementation of the idea that property cannot be violated ever because it's, it's the only property right that can live in your mind, right? You can actually hold your private keys in your brain to the point where the only way to take it is for you to voluntarily surrender it. Now you could argue that someone could torture you until you give up your private key or whatever. Sure, I guess that's that's a valid argument. It, it ignores the different ways you can custody Bitcoin that could prevent that. But the point is that at the end, the end of the day, to surrender that property, it has to be voluntarily surrendered by you. Versus if you have a chest of gold coins in your house, someone can come in and involuntarily take that away from you. Right? Mm -hmm. They don't need your consent. But to surrender your Bitcoin private key requires consent due to its informational nature. So I think it's, yeah, this is very powerful. Maybe the Bitcoin is this realization of this ancient, older idea. Yeah, I mean, certainly digitally it is. I mean, it can be forced out of you by, you know, you put, I put you through an incredible amount of pain and you, you, I force you to give me your keys. Yes, but at yeah. that point of surrender even, it's consensual, right? Someone is, even if you've tortured them, they have to be like, they've had to reach a point that they said, okay, I'm now going to surrender this key. Mm. You can't come and take your hand and pull it out of my head is what I'm trying to say. I, I, I accept that. Yeah. And I would add to it, you know, we talked about this in the last program. It's the first time we've had a money that governments can't print. Mm -hmm. You could say that gold um, was a money that governments can't print and they couldn't, but, you know, governments and kings and so on would occupy the gold resources. Mm -hmm. When they conquered someone new, they would loot the gold resources and they'd remint the money with their own um, image on it. And part of conquering a country would be conquering the gold supplies, you know, the mines and so on. So rulers could take control of it. Mm -hmm. It's very different with Bitcoin. Yeah. So I think it changes the nature of rule. Yes. You know, we talked already about how, on, well, I, I did anyway, about how technology is our new ruler. Yes. Certainly in the digital world. But so, you know, Bitcoin is extraordinarily transformative for that reason. Extraordinarily. Yes, absolutely. And um, the, the, it's important to realize, I think, here too, that fiat currency inflation is a violation of private property rights. Oh, my God. Isn't it so? Like, that's all it is. It's nothing else, actually. My, my left-wing mates, and I have way too many, I should know better, <laughs> they, don't, they don't see anything wrong with it. They think money printing is fine. They've all got their houses and the house prices go up, so it suits them on a personal level. And I think they, they think that it's, an, it's the only way to deal with the situation we're in. And they don't trust individuals... To, to be left alone and negotiate their own. You know, I have to think, for example, a voluntarist approach might have resulted in better outcomes in COVID than a than a yeah, I agree. All I agree completely. But but you know, we'll never know. But the they that's just beyond their ken. You have to have some kind of government directive, government ruling. But this is it's a. I mean, I think your book is proven that technological realities are percolating up through individuals. 
right? To change morality, to change our conception of freedom. Whatever. Now it takes a long time. I'm not saying you just switch out of tech and then change people instantly. It's intergenerational, but to not trust the sovereignty of the individual, I think is just a deep ideological fallacy of some kind. Like the individual is the acting agent in the world to try and say anything else, to try to, try to say, no, the individual needs to be subordinate to any group, whether it's government, um, you know, of rate, anything, any other group, it just doesn't make logical or moral sense. If you look at the revolutions of the um, 17th and 18th centuries, and then you look at the world today, there are so many parallels, so many excess taxation, inequitable taxation, um, the rise of a new form of media, Mm-hmm. the 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 debasement of currency the excess government activity meddling in ideas they shouldn't the crony capitalism the leeching classes mm. there are just so many parallels and you know you can just feel discontent maybe it's just <laughs> my twitter mm-hmm. bubble but you can feel discontent you know mm-hmm. something's coming but the question i ask myself is is whatever's coming you know, the difference in how armed an ordinary citizen was compared to the military in the 17th and 18th century was not that different. Oh, sorry, you know, the, the military would have had better weapons, yeah. but they weren't that much better. Whereas today, you know, in Europe, we don't have guns and the army does. And mm. in America, the army has better guns. Um, so I don't, I don't know if it ends with violence, but there's definitely some kind of revolution happening. Maybe yeah. it's just, we, we lead these, it's going to be a bit like avatar or something where we're, we're sort of stuck in the physical world in reality. And we lead these sort of second digital lives of, mm. of total freedom. Yeah. The, the 3d printing is an interesting wild card too. And talking about the asymmetry of weaponry that could you know, depending which way that goes, that could largely balance the playing field. I don't know if you've seen some of these 3D printed weapons, but they are, you can print anything you want. What, like a bazooka or something? Anything. Like, I, I don't know about bazooka per se. I was just thinking automatic weaponry. Like you can print a, um, like a 50 caliber type machine gun <laughs> that you'd see on the back of a Humvee. You can print those now. Now, okay. I'm not 100% clear on how, you know, you can source the ammunition, if you can print the ammunition. I'm no expert, but if yeah. you just look at a few of these videos online, the guns that are being printed, they're indistinguishable from, you know, guns we thought uh, we didn't know you could print, let's say. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I hope it doesn't end with violence. I hope not too, but man, a, if you just glance at history. I hope we get an English revolution and a bloodless revolution. Yeah. As opposed I'm, to an American or a French one. Another Imagine glorious revolution took 50 years of civil war to achieve. <clears throat> wasn't that bloodless. So then there was a getting back to this, the French arc here that um, eventually they had the revolution, right? So that the people got sick of it. They brought out the guillotines, the heads yeah. rolled. Uh, but then there were bills to pay after the fact, and that was the assignment episode, right? Where they actually started. Yeah, yeah. How do you say it? Sorry? They started assignment. Assignment. 
Yeah, the, the GN, assignat in French, the GN is Nye. Ah, assignat. And so, yeah, they, they issued, they stole a load of money. They stole a lot of land off the Catholic Church. <laughs> that was another thing. The church was very corrupt, and that was sort of the end of the Catholic Church in France mm. as a huge power thing. They confiscated a lot of land off the um, Catholic Church and then issued paper money based on representing some of that land. Mm. And of course, the paper money did very well. So they started issuing more of the paper money without backing it with land. Yeah. <laughs> and it very quickly erupted uh, in uh, hyperinflation. Yeah, I just actually finished a book on this called Fiat Currency Inflation in France. The oh, yeah. Walk, I know that. The walks yeah. through the whole episode. It's a short book, but such an elegant description of the, the corrosive influence of inflation right it talks about people you know social morality going down the tubes people becoming more intent on gambling they ultimately burned they broke and burned the printing press i think on public display to like finally put an end to the inflation but it was a long drawn out you know miserable affair uh, and from those ashes from the ashes of that hyperinflation came napoleon yeah and when he walked when he walked through Paris, the streets of Paris, the people shouted out, Plus d'impôts, à bas des riches, à bas la République, vive l'empereur, which means no more taxes, down with the rich, down with the republic, long live the emperor. Wow. But no more taxes, the first thing they said. Yeah. And by this point, <laughs> France was so bankrupt that it did what must be the worst real estate deal in all <laughs> history. It is extraordinary. It sold, it was, it, and the beneficiary of this was the United States, but it was in 1803. It sold all its land in the United States, uh, 800,000 square miles for $15 million, okay, which works out at three cents an acre. <laughs> And this was and the, it, it was the whole, all of, it was basically the entire Mississippi Delta. Right. I think we call this the Louisiana purchase in the U S Louisiana purchase. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, what a deal that was by, uh, your, your American <laughs> uh, former leaders. <laughs> and this was the same dynamic that hit that would cause the rise of Hitler over a century later. Right. It's hyperinflation. People get so sick of, the ruling classes, the taxes, the inflation, that they just want to vest powers into the, the most seemingly capable guy. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, clearly the absolute power imparted corrupts absolutely and you get these disastrous outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely right. But for a while there under Napoleon, and you said in your book, taxes were lower, fairer, and more efficient and France thrived. So he actually does, and Hitler did the same. They come into this economic mess with yeah. an iron fist. They lay down some solid rules and the economy flourishes for a short time. Yeah, I mean, Hitler, the, the Nazis, they were quite naughty with their taxes. They, they like, I mean, what, what Napoleon did is he just imposed extraordinarily punitive taxes on Northern Italy. Mm. Like, so it's fine for the French, but the Northern Italians were paying uh, the tax. And Hitler did the same with the Jews. He just, you know, before he 
murdered them. He taxed them to death pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's, it's in the book, but I think something like one third of entire Nazi spending came from looting Jews in the, right. in the entire world, you know, from 1932 through to 45 or whatever it was, looted Jewish wealth. So they didn't tax their, they taxed their enemies. They taxed their conquered lands. Yeah. They didn't, um, tax their own citizens. Right. And yeah, you made this, the same point with Napoleon that that was actually his vulnerability is that he needed to conquer new lands to yeah. sustain revenue. Otherwise it, he couldn't keep going to war. Same problem that Rome had. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The United States has done two amazing real estate deals. There's a Louisiana purchase in Alaska as well. Oh, yeah. as a, a good, good real estate deal. Lots Maybe of oil. Just stick to real estate. <laughs> Start dealing with whoever owns Greenland and maybe chunks of Canada and, and lay off the war and everything else you get up to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. 